Giuliani and uh, Heidi Schneider got engaged recently. Stand up, would you, so that people know who you are. So congratulations to you guys. They're looking forward to getting married in May of next year. So pretty neat. Great. Praise God. Um, last week I mentioned that I read about this gravestone uh, over in England, you might remember. And uh, on the gravestone uh, it said, Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. Prepare. And uh, a visitor was walking through that cemetery, read those words, and added his own two lines after it. And he wrote on the tombstone there, To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Okay? (laughs) So I thought it was kind of an interesting uh, gravestone. And um, you and I are focused on a section of scripture where God talks a lot about what's going to happen in the future in First and Second Thessalonians. And whether we've already died or we're still alive, there is a day coming uh, when Jesus will return. And on that day, he will bring with him the souls, right, of all of those believers who have already died. And just like we sang this morning, I will rise when he calls my name. Those souls will be united with their resurrection bodies. That's the great promise that God has made to us about that future day. And uh, they will be in those resurrection bodies. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. What a great day that's going to be. Verse 14, Uh, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we're looking forward to this day, whether we've uh, already died or uh, whether we're still alive. If we're still alive when that day comes, uh, the Bible says we'll be raised together with those people who have already preceded us and we'll be caught up together with them and uh, meet them in the air. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with those other folks who had previously died into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Uh, Be an inspiration to each other with the truth about what we are looking forward to in the future. All of this is what's commonly referred to as the rapture or the rescue of the church. The rapture of the church, the catching up of the believers before the day of God's wrath begins, the day of the Lord. Uh, The day of the Lord is talked about all through the scriptures, many places, Old and New Testament. And, um, you know, uh, this portion of scripture that's talking about this uh, starts with uh, a kind of a, a word from God that says, look, we don't want you to be uninformed about this. We don't want you to be ignorant about it. We don't want you to be um, confused about this, right? Paul writes to this church. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about this. And you know, it seems to me like an awful lot of Christians totally ignore 
what God has to say about what we call eschatology or end time events. And so uh, we're taking a little time to go through First and Second Thessalonians uh, to kind of familiarize ourselves what God has, you know, uh, revealed to us. And uh, there are many places, you know, one of the um, one of the best ways to understand prophecy is to compare scripture with other scripture that talks about the same event, because different authors uh, give different nuances or different clues, and when we put it all together, we come closest to the truth. And so uh, it's never a good idea to just take one passage in isolation and ignore. And so here Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to this church about these things. Um, Peter talks about this. Jesus talks about this. Daniel talks about this uh, from the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament prophets. And so one of the things, for example, that um, uh, Paul says here in Thessalonians is that on that day when Jesus comes back, one of the sounds that we're going to hear is what uh, Paul says is the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God. Now, there's a lot of trumpets in the Bible. There's trumpets that are blown by angels. There's trumpets that are blown by uh, you know, kings and prophets. And, and there's trumpets uh, you know, on, on many different uh, occasions, many different places. But this passage says that we'll hear the trumpet of God. If you go to Paul's uh, commentary on this same day, um, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, Paul writes like this uh, to the Corinthian church. He says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We won't all stay dead, but we'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last, the last trumpet. Okay? And so, you know, immediately we ask, you know, what's the last trumpet? Uh, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. What's the last trumpet? Now, there's a lot of confusion about this because people, you know, like go, the very last trumpet in, in the Bible is a part of the day of the Lord. There are seven trumpets of God's judgment that are unleashed. And a lot of people try to figure out, well, wait a minute, how can that be? Because that would mean the church would last through uh, the day of the Lord and God's wrath. And we're promised that, no, that'll never happen and, and so forth. Well, if you carefully recognize that this is the trumpet of God, there's only two places in the entire Bible uh, that mention that God himself blows a trumpet. The first one is back in Exodus chapter 19 when the law came. You might remember when the people of Israel were called to Mount Sinai and God was about to give the Ten Commandments in in, um, Exodus chapter 19. uh, We read in verse 11, you know, be ready for the third day for on the third day the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then in verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and uh, the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on the mountain, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up to the top of the mountain. And uh, it's the Lord that blows the trumpet on that occasion. And then um, in Zechariah, which is uh, an Old Testament prophet, right near the end of the Old Testament, 
Uh, In Zechariah, there's a prophecy about the last trumpet and this trumpet that will sound on the day uh, that I believe the Lord will come back and we will rise at the sound of our name and so forth. And it just so happens that it's uh, right in a section of scripture uh, that also prophesies um, Palm Sunday. It's very interesting. This passage of scripture, uh, Zechariah started his uh, career, if you will, Uh, about 520 B.C., that's 500 years before uh, the first Christmas, before Jesus ever came. And, um, you know, Daniel gives the timetable of everything, and if you figure out Daniel and Zechariah, put it together, you come down to the exact day of Palm Sunday, and this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, rejoice greatly. Zechariah is talking about the return of the king to Israel. And uh, he's saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. 500 years before Christmas. And uh, you do the math from Daniel and you come right down to Palm Sunday. It's really kind of interesting. But the The passage that uh, talks about the trumpet is in verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like like lightning. If you read Matthew 24, Jesus says when he comes back, it'll be like lightning flashing across the sky. Everybody will see it. All right? And then listen to this. The Lord God will sound the trumpet. This is the last trumpet. This is God blowing the trumpet. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south, the Negev, south of Jerusalem and so forth, uh, perhaps a reference to tornadoes. And, and uh, you know, we know that there's going to be some cosmic you know, consequences to the fact that the Lord is coming back. But it's really interesting. Uh, Jesus talks about the same thing. And uh, all this to say, you know, Jesus is going to return and the Bible would not have us be uninformed. We need to know what we believe when it comes to the return of Jesus because our hope is based on the promises that God has made. And so believers are looking forward to this day big time. If you're a believer and, you know, if you're living for God, you know that it's frustrating sometimes in the world uh, to stick up and, and to share what God has entrusted to us with the world we live in. And we're looking forward to this day when Jesus comes back and uh, God will be vindicated as well as us. Uh, Titus chapter uh, 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our what? Blessed hope. You know, the best translation of the word blessed is happy. I call it the happy hope, right? It's what enables us to have joy. This confidence that there is a future that's going to be fabulous for those of us who have trusted Christ. And uh, that God has committed himself to it and, and promised it. And so we're waiting for this blessed hope. What is this blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here Jesus is called our God, okay? The, uh, you're worshiping at Trinity Church this morning. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And so here's one of these great verses that talks about Jesus as God, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession and so on. And so 
There's this day coming when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ rise, and those who are still alive are caught up together in order to meet the Lord. But after that happens, and all the believers are gone off the face of the earth, there will be lots of unbelievers left on the face of the earth. And uh, that's uh, when the unleashing of the day of the Lord, or God's wrath, or God's judgment will begin. And again... um, you know, there are a lot of people who kind of ask the question and are uh, thinking, you know, uh, if God, you know, is so holy, why doesn't he do something about all the evil in the world? You turn on the news and you ask yourself, you know, how long can this keep going like it is, right? And you, you kind of wonder. And so what's the Bible's answer? Well, there is a day coming called the day of the Lord in which God will vent his anger and his wrath. But the good news is that for those of us who have trusted Christ and what he accomplished for us, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for his wrath. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, uh, we are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is salvation anyway? It's being saved from the wrath that we deserve, right? Um, It's being saved from the day of the Lord in a very uh, literal way. And so, you know, the most logical question then is when? When is this going to happen, right? If you believe God and you believe the scriptures and you believe the promises, then the next question that pops into your head is is when? When is this really going to happen? And... um, Will I be ready? And so that's the next thing that Paul talks about here in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Concerning the times and the seasons, I think what Paul is saying is you already have the book of Daniel written for you. Right, And um, what we have written is written in Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament where we are given a literal timetable of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And uh, when you do the math there, um, we realize that there is one seven-year period left in which God is going to finish his relationship with Israel on this earth with his chosen people. And that's why watching Israel is the key to understanding prophecy. Because this last seven-year period uh, revolves around uh, God's finishing his relationship on earth uh, with Israel. And um, it's really an interesting period of time. Lots of uh, specific prophecy is talked about uh, around this seven-year period of time. And uh, what's debated the most, okay, about all of this is the timing. And uh, what's really, uh, you know, divided Christians is... Uh, when exactly in relationship to this seven-year period does Jesus come back? And um, I'd like to, uh, you know, address that as we go through Thessalonians. But let's observe what uh, Paul has to say at the beginning of this chapter 5. Concerning the times and the seasons, you don't have need for me to write more to you. Okay, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, this judgment from God, will come like a thief in the night, okay? Will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security. While people are saying everything's cool, everything's fine, there's peace, there's security. 
Okay, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Notice uh, the word there, um, they, okay, uh, they. For you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, uh, then sudden destruction will come upon them, them, okay? Who's them? Who, for whom is this going to be a surprise? For whom is this going to come like a thief in the night? And then notice verse 4, the next verse says, but you, but you, okay, are not in the dark, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. There's definitely a them and an us in this passage of scripture. You're not in the dark that this day is going to come upon you like a surprise, like a thief, okay? Um, For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let's stay awake and be sober and so on. There's definitely a them and an us in this passage. There's a world of difference between unbelievers and believers when it comes to uh, being ready for the Lord to come back in this day that Paul is talking about. There's a radical difference. For the unbeliever, this will be a total surprise. You know, like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't announce that he's coming. He comes unexpected, and he comes to the unprepared, and, uh, you know, does the best when people are not aware that he's coming. Uh, Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Again, it's important to compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, Verse 10, the day of the Lord, this day of God's judgment, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works uh, will be exposed, and so on and so forth. The day of the Lord will be a total surprise to them, okay? Uh, But not to us. The unbeliever, to the unbeliever, it will come like a thief in the night. And again, Jesus says the same thing. In Matthew chapter 24... Very important passage of scripture where Jesus explains all of this. And uh, if you start in like verse 36, uh, concerning that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angel in heaven. What day and what hour, nobody knows. We're not talking, we're talking about the times and the seasons, but the day and the hour, nobody knows. Now, every once in a while, there's somebody who pops up and predicts the day, Right? And uh, you can just kind of ignore that and know that, you know, nobody really knows that except the Father, verse 36. Um, as, but here's what Jesus says it's going to be like. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be, uh, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, until that day. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, if you remember, when Noah was building the ark, he was preaching at the same time, warning people about this coming judgment. But nobody paid any attention to him, right? And until the day that Noah got into the ark and was saved um, and the rain started, people didn't pay any attention. And Jesus says, it'll be just like that when I come back. Uh, And here's he elaborates a little bit. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known 
in what uh, part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. And therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Be ready. Stay awake. Be sober. You know, uh, you are not going to be surprised by this. You're in the light. You have the word of God, which reveals to us what's going to happen just prior to uh, he comes and so forth. And uh, when we read this and when we think about this, we realize, you know, that uh, we are in a different spot uh, than the rest of the world. And because of that, it's incumbent upon us to be like Noah and to try to share with people around us uh, what actually is going to happen. Now, this period of time is talked about in the book of Revelation in terms of seven different seals, probably familiar with this, the early part of Revelation. Uh, uh, John is in, has this uh, vision. He's invited into heaven, and there on the throne, uh, God is holding this scroll, and it's, you might think of it as the title deed to the, the universe. And that scroll is sealed with seven different seals. And all those seals have to be broken before the scroll can be opened and uh, God rightfully takes back his planet. And so uh, those seals, when we study those seals, um, we, we read that you know, the first five seals describe a lot of turmoil and a lot of chaos and a lot of trial that comes upon uh, the world. But all of those seals, the first five seals, are in the realm of what you might call natural occurrences. Uh, they are wars and famines and inflation and pestilence and persecution and so forth. Um, Jesus calls that period of time the beginning of birth pangs. You know how birth pangs start out not as bad, but they increase in intensity as the time grows closer. And so Jesus calls those the, 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 um, the birth pangs, the, the beginning of birth pangs. And um, it's not until the sixth seal, which is the coming of Jesus, which is accompanied by um, cosmic disturbances. I mean, the sun doesn't shine, the moon goes blood, uh, the stars fall out of the sky, mountains are moved, islands are moved. It's not until that whole thing happens and Jesus comes back that the rest of the world is going to say, my goodness, something Radical is happening here. What is going on? The, the cosmos is falling apart. And uh, all of a sudden, people will realize this is bigger than just natural kinds of things. Uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, you know. And then finally, the seventh seal um, is broken. And um, that's when the day of the Lord begins. Uh, and, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans as well. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So here, you know, the rest of the world is going to experience the wrath of God for suppressing, rejecting, ignoring uh, the truth of God. And, um, you know, when you think about this, uh, unbelievers uh, will have this sudden, you know, panic-stricken experience. And again, Jesus talked about it. It'll be just like in the days of Noah. 
And, uh, you know, this time of judgment keeps getting closer and closer. We're closer today than we've ever been before, right? Because on God's timetable, we just keep moving closer uh, to the fulfillment of these promises, this time of uh, judgment. But um, the world doesn't really care, doesn't seem to even notice. In fact, uh, Peter says, when we get to this point, uh, the world will sort of mock the whole idea, if you run around and start talking to people about, hey, you know, someday Jesus is coming back and someday God is going to vent his wrath, that, uh, the judgment that we all deserve for all the evil that's going on and, and so on and so forth. And Second uh, uh, Peter, he talks about it, verse 3 and 4. He says, knowing, first of all, that uh, scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They're going to say, hey, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just like it was from the beginning of creation. And Peter, this is, you know, again, talk about the same period of time, talk about the same thing, Peter's perspective. And uh, he says, you know, when people do that, listen to this, they deliberately, on purpose, overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. People deliberately ignore the flood of Noah. People consciously, deliberately, we're just going to ignore that when we think about judgment and we point back to saying, don't you remember the flood and, and so forth? Uh, people will ignore it. And uh, not only that, but uh, we're told in Timothy, uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, again, he's talking here about the last days. Um, listen to this. Uh, and a lot of people think, you know, we're, we've, we're in the last days. Uh, understand this. Again, understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people as these. Here's what the last times will actually be like as Paul writes to Timothy, godlessness is the root cause you know, of moral issues and moral problems. Uh, now you think about uh, us even in our culture in America, um, whether it's redefining marriage or talking about pornography or addictions or violence, godlessness is the common denominator. Uh, we grab for what we think feels good rather than what we understand is good. When we leave God out, when we ignore God, when God's not first, right? Uh, we grab for what feels good, not what is good, when we reject or ignore our uh, creator. And then you add to this kind of moral stuff um, some of the other things that the Bible talks about will be true during this time. And uh, you notice that the rise of Russia in our day is a phenomenon. Russia plays a part in end-time events, and it's like, I don't know, all of a sudden Russia's in the news every day. Um, the isolation of Israel and um, the rise of uh, radical Islam. Do you know that when we talk about the Middle East, right, 
uh, the territory that we're talking about in the Middle East, 98.2% of the land belongs to the Arabs and the Muslims. 98.2% of the Middle East. Well, that leaves 1.8% of the land is the nation of Israel. Okay? And if you're just a little familiar with history and some of the wars that Israel has fought since 1948 when they became recognized by uh, the world as a sovereign nation once again, unprecedented. And um, <clears throat> when that happened, there was a number of wars where that whole 98.2% tried to drive that 1.8% into the Mediterranean and get rid of it. And it's still here. Why is that? There's something really significant going on for anybody who wants to just open their eyes and ask those kind of questions. What's going on here? Well, it's exactly what God told us would, would happen. And uh, again, these last seven years, you know, are God's dealing primarily with the nation of Israel. But Israel, the Bible says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, has been set aside so that the Gentile nations can come in. And when the fullness of the Gentiles, you know, is accomplished, then all of a sudden, um, God will bring Israel back into the center stage and so forth. But, you know, um, so you have these things, radical Islam, um, the isolation of Israel, technology. Uh, when I was a kid and I'd read Revelation, I couldn't understand it, you know, and I, I just couldn't even imagine it. Now you read Revelation with the technology that we have, and all of a sudden you're like, we're there. You read like Revelation 14 and ask yourself, how could that possibly ever happen? And uh, with technology. And so while the world, you know, will be caught totally off guard, uh, we believers um, are contrasted with the rest, rest of the world in that passage. And uh, verse 4 says, But you are not in the dark, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. That day should not surprise uh, us believers. And this passage, you know, changed my whole understanding of what God's revealed about end-time events. Uh, the day that Jesus comes back does not come to the believer like a thief in the night. We are clued in. We are watching. We know what's going on. We know what to look for. Uh, we have the scriptures, uh, and we're living with this sense of expectation. In fact, we're waiting. It's the source of our hope. It's the day that finally everything will be vindicated that we've believed and so on. And so you can't help but notice the contrast between the unbeliever and the believer. Uh, while the world is thinking peace and security, verse 3, believers know that devastating destruction is just around the corner. It's right at the door. And uh, you contrast the difference between the unbeliever and the believer in these days. Um, and it's the difference between being deceived and knowing the truth. And the world will be deceived, and we have been exposed to the truth. It's the difference between ignorance and knowledge. If you just peek ahead into 2 Thessalonians, and uh, when Paul writes the second letter in chapter 2, first couple of verses, uh, Paul's again saying this, Now concerning uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So again, we're talking about the same event, the same period of time. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So these, this church in Thessalonica got confused. Somebody sent a letter and signed it Paul and uh, told people, you know, and, and some of the people had died and, and uh, we looked at that and, and so forth. But um, when we look at this passage of scripture and we go to verses 9 and 10, uh, notice what Paul says. 
the coming of the lawless one, uh, that's the Antichrist, again, comes right in the middle of that seven-year period, uh, is by the activity of Satan. See, there's a world of difference between the turmoil caused by Satan and the wrath of God. And I think that's like the main point of confusion when it comes to understanding uh, prophecy. So here we are exactly in the middle, and uh, this Antichrist is empowered uh, by no less than Satan himself with all power and false signs and wonders. Right? So he'll be able to do what we would call miracles, and, and it'll wow a lot of people and so forth. But we're in the light. We've got the word of God. We know what to look for, you know, and so on. And, um, and look at verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, why are people perishing? They refused to love the truth. They refused to love the truth. Here's God trumpeting from heaven the truth. Here's God sending his spirit into the world, sending his son into the world, writing the scriptures, the written word of God. And yet people suppress the truth. Uh, People refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore God sends a delusion upon them and so forth. They are the people who will be surprised uh, at the coming of the Lord. And it was the same when Jesus came the first time. This contrast between being in the dark and being in the light. You remember when Jesus came the first time in John chapter 3 and verse 19, light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. And so they refused him. They refused to love the truth. Jesus is the truth. And Paul goes on in our passage and he says this contrast between the unbeliever and the believer is the difference between being high or drunk and being sober. It's the difference between being asleep and being awake. It's the contrast between being judged by a holy, holy, holy God and being saved by that holy God. And again, we are, uh, uh, we're not in the dark. And um, we know what's going to happen. We know what to look for. We know uh, what's coming. And... Um, in 2 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in a great way, that as soon as a person becomes a Christian, and um, as soon as you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, God says he turns a light on inside of us, in our souls, okay? In um, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, what, 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 what what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who created the sun and the moon and the stars, let light shine out of the God who created the universe, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God turns a light on inside of our hearts that enables us to begin to see the truth and to begin to understand and to begin to trust God. His spirit comes in and his light comes on and we have these aha moments where all of a sudden we're like, oh, I get this now, you know. Uh, To be in the dark is to live as if there's never going to be a judgment day. It's to be deceived. It's to be unprepared. To live soberly. Okay, is to live deeply, not surfacy. And it's to enjoy the pleasures of the soul more than the pleasures of the body. Recognizing our bodies are temporary. 
and our souls are eternal. And it's finding joy in the promises of God. It's living deeply and even hastening the day uh, to come. Again, back in Peter, where in, in 2 Peter 3, where uh, Peter talks about this thing, he, he says, look, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people should you be? Living lives of holiness and godliness and waiting for and hastening the coming of that day. How can we hasten the coming of that day? Uh, how can we do our part to hasten that day? Well, uh, you might remember that Jesus said in connection with this, again in Matthew chapter 24, that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel will be proclaimed in the whole world, and then the end will come. You know, uh, are we doing our part to hasten this day on? Uh, we have our missions conference coming up on the other side of Easter a couple of weeks after Easter, and our theme this year is uh, around the world and across the street, right? Or across the street and around the world. I can't remember exactly which way it is, but you get the idea, you know, uh, that it's our privilege to represent God uh, around the world and across the street. And I hope that, you know, all of us are doing our part. I hope that you've befriended at least one of our missionaries in a personal way. And if not, this is an occasion, again, our missions We'll have some of our missionaries with us on the occasion to do that. Get to know them on a personal level. Commit to pray for them, that God would use them and that, that God would make them fruitful, you know, and give through faith promise so that we might do our part. We're not having to win the whole world, but we need to do our part. And uh, so each year we take a week and, and commit ourselves again to uh, doing our part to hasten this day and so on. And, uh, so, and then Paul says in Thessalonians, uh, at the end of this portion of scripture, he says, so then, verse 6, so then, let us not sleep like others do. Let us stay awake and be sober. Uh, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Two pieces of defensive armor if we're going to make it through this period of time. The breastplate of faith and love. The breastplate is what, or the shield, if you will, is what protects our heart. And the helmet is what protects our head. Two pieces of defensive armor if we're going to make it through this day. And our shield is made up of our faith and our love. And the helmet, right? Uh, the helmet of salvation uh, Paul calls it, the, I think, football helmet, right? It's got all the pads on the inside. It's got the mask. Got the, it protects your head, you know, and, and that's made up of hope. Paul says the helmet of salvation is our hope, and that's our confidence in this future that God has promised us and uh, how important it is. Even though, you know, uh, it seems to me that even though we believers here in um, the United States have enjoyed the privilege of living in a country uh, that's supportive of Christian values for many, many years. You know, our, our um, uh, Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal and that we are endowed by our creator, not by our government, by our creator with certain unalienable rights. And uh, we recognize that in all through our history and so forth. But it's obvious today, in the day that we're living in, uh, that Christianity is increasingly facing intolerance from our culture. 
Uh, when we speak up about our beliefs or our opinions about marriage being between a man and a woman or about sexuality or about creationism or about the exclusiveness of the gospel, we better have our shield in place and we better have our helmet on because we're not going to meet what our ancestors met uh, in embracing those thoughts that come from uh, the scripture. And uh, increasingly, you know, businesses uh, are not allowed to assert their Christian beliefs and choose who they serve. You might remember that bakery out in Oregon where they decided they would not, uh, they didn't want to bake a wedding cake for a lesbian couple, wedding cake, and um, they were fined $135,000. You know, this is in America. And uh, you might know that um, eHarmony, you know, the dating service that was based on Christian principles, uh, was forced by a lawsuit to open up a website for gay and lesbian people. Um, Again, this is America. And uh, Christian institutions, you know, have to accept same-sex couples. And on and on we could go. It's the media. It's the entertainment industry. It's the courts forced to remove the Ten Commandments from their courtrooms. Uh, It's the uh, public education system forced to remove the Bible and prayer from the classrooms. It's the government. Uh, No longer are Christian values um, supported. And... um, That's in Christian America. And I want to suggest that uh, here in America, Christianity, which used to be mainline, is now becoming a subculture, like in other countries, a subculture of our culture. And uh, we as Christians are often characterized and stereotyped as homophobic, uh, judgmental, narrow-minded hypocrites. Our special days, like Christmas and Easter, are distracted by every conceivable means to pull attention away from Jesus, who is the center you know, of what God is doing between himself and the world. Why does the truth of God and his gracious offer of salvation generate such hostility? Starting with Jesus himself, if you think Good Friday. Because along with the free gift of salvation comes acknowledging that God is right. And comes submission to God. And comes recognition that I need God's forgiveness. And out the window goes my pride. And in comes humility. And I would rather stay in the dark than surrender my pride. And uh, again, uh, Paul talks about this in in, uh, his uh, book of Romans, you know, in uh, verse 20. He says, uh, these invisible attributes, God's power and his nature have been clearly perceived Uh, since the beginning of creation of the whole world in the things that have been made. So people are without an excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Why is there such resistance to our generous gracious, self-sacrificing God. Because men love darkness rather than light. And why will it be such a surprise when Jesus returns to the rest of the world? Well, because people love darkness rather than light. People love self more than God. People love wrong more than right. And so Paul says, look, if you belong to the day, be sober. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. 
Isn't it interesting that Paul ends in the same place that he started this letter? You remember when he started this letter in verse 3? Um, he said, we give thanks to God for this church, remembering before God our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope are the three non-negotiable absolutes of the Christian life. Faith is always based on the past and what God has done and said. Love is for the present. It's the preoccupation to love God and to love your neighbor is what, the, what this life is for. And hope is all about the future. Faith, love, and hope. Three non-negotiable absolutes in the Christian life. Um, is our focus in our sobriety and in our awakeness and in our daylight is our focus on faith, love, and hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed the future to us, that we can have confidence that there is a day when Jesus, the object of our faith, will return. And what a day that's going to be, that we will rise when you call our name. And uh, Father, that uh, in the meantime, you've called us to love the people that you love. Jesus died for the whole world, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to catch the vision of why we're still here and that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly in a way, Father, that other people might see what a gracious, loving, self-sacrificing God you are. And, Father, would recognize the seriousness of the consequences of our sins and our choices. We all have things in our life that we know we shouldn't do that we do, and we all have things in our life that we know we should do that we don't do. And, Father, you keep track of all of this because you made us for yourself. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to yield ourselves to you afresh and anew, even this Easter time, in order that you might be glorified for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to ask our